0: If you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1163. 1163, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6 and looking at verses 5 through 9 today. So listen closely, because this is God's Word that is for you. Bondservants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same thing to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask our bless- his blessing on this, our text this morning. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this passage that you have given to us to show us how the best way to live is. pray that we would take it and learn from it and ask that you would help us to believe it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how do you answer the question that inevitably comes up when you meet someone That question, what do you do? It's always a fun question to answer, particularly for me, because I like watching people's faces when they find out I'm a pastor. This has been something that's been amusing even when I was in college and would say, I'm studying to be a minister. Immediately, people would start backing away and asking if they had offended me in some way. Tells you a lot about people, how they find out about those things. But whatever it is that you do in your life, however it is that you answer this question of what do you do, what we find out is that this is actually not the most important thing about us. How you put food on the table, as long as it is an honorable profession, is not something that God makes a differentiation on, but actually has something to tell us whether we are employees or employers or retirees. There's something unique about our culture in that we get to be on both sides of this passage all in our lives. You say, it's like, well, I don't sign paychecks. I'm not an employer. Well, you take advantage of a lot of services, don't you? You come to a restaurant, who is working for you? It's the waiter. When you go to the bank, who is working for you? The bank teller. you go to the doctor's office, the person behind the desk is working for you. All over the place, we are both those that serve and those who are being served. So no matter what station of life we find ourselves in, this passage, in fact, applies uniquely to our culture and has something to say to us all. And that is, ultimately, as one commentator put it, Christian slaves belong to one Lord, Jesus Christ, and their obedience to their earthly masters is all of a piece Of their serving Him. So, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at our two points, as we usually do, as you can see on the back of your prayer guide and the insert in your bulletin. We have our two points. Simply, point number one servants serve Jesus. And number two, masters, remember that you serve Jesus too. That's what we're going to look at as we jump into this passage together. Now, let's start by addressing the elephant in the room, which is slavery. This is something that, depending on your translation, if you're reading out of the New American Standard, it might translate, the passage of the ESV translates bond servants and translates it slaves. In fact, you can even see in the uh, ESV, they have a little footnote that points you down to the preface that talks about why they've made the decisions that they do. When we look at how the Bible speaks about slavery, people have used that as an opportunity to say that the Bible is immoral. As they say, ah, it has things for slavery, it doesn't seem to condemn it, so therefore the Bible is immoral. Well, one of the first things we have to keep in mind is the slavery as we have known it, especially here in the United States, of going out to some other country, capturing another person, bringing, it over, bringing them over here, and selling them, is something that even in the Old Testament called for the death penalty. It was called man-stealing. And you can see that in Exodus twenty-one sixteen and Deuteronomy 24, 7. This was something that the Lord has always found reprehensible. So when we think about slavery, this is not what this is talking about here. That being said, in the New Testament, Paul is addressing something that was was an integral part of the Roman Empire's economy. Slavery was something that they they estimate that there was roughly a third of the population was a slave. And while there are definitely sources that you can find that would point to the fact that slaves did have some rights, you could advance in slavery, some even sold themselves into slavery as a means of cultural advancement, this does not mean that being a slave in the Roman Empire was fun or easy or humanizing. If you were a slave, you were considered property. And if we were to make the modern day analogy today, you've been considered a talking drill or a talking wagon and that you could use and abuse and dispose of your slaves however you so chose. This is the economy that the New Testament is speaking to. And you'll notice, as one commentator puts it, that this is actually a radical stance that Paul is taking. Listen to how he puts it. If Paul does not make a full frontal attack on slavery, he is certainly putting a time bomb under it. What is he saying here in that last verse, especially the last phrase that Paul is making an equality between the master and the slave? Essentially saying the Lord doesn't see the difference between you two. You both are servants. You both are people. Even the fact that Paul is addressing them. He's not addressing property. He's addressing people. And beginning that adjustment is something that uh, the institution of slavery is not able to withstand. And that's why, as other commentators have pointed out, that the great people that have stopped the slave trade, namely William Wilberforce and others, have used these principles that are in the New Testament to free these slaves and to end the slave trade as we knew it then. It's also worth mentioning, That we in our modern society do not get to look down on these other societies, even the past of our own, and say, well, at least we're past that. There are actually more slaves now than there were then. In fact, according to the International Justice Mission, approximately 50 million people are still in slavery today. We find those slaves even in America. Perhaps you've watched them on certain websites. This is where a lot of that happens. still happens today. And this is something that the Bible still speaks to, that the Lord does not show partiality. We don't get to abuse and use people because of their station in life, whether our culture has said it's okay or not. So what Paul does is he addresses these bondservants, these slaves, and gives them a simple command, says to obey your master's. Now, notice that he moves on and says, with fear and trembling. Now, we might think that because of where slaves were in that time, that this is meaning that they need to be physically afraid of their masters. Be ready to take a beating whenever you're going to get one. But that's not what he says here. The phrase, as other scholars have pointed out, the, the phrase fear and trembling actually comes up in a lot of different contexts in Paul's letters, particularly in Philippians 2.12, 2 Corinthians 7.15, and 1 Corinthians 2.3. And in each of these contexts, what Paul is pointing us to is not fear and trembling of the person immediately in front of us, but fear and trembling of the God who stands behind that person. In other words, we are to be in awe. It's not a trembling in our boots, fearing of punishment, but it's in awe of the God who is behind whoever it is that we're supposed to serve, recognizing we're ultimately serving our Lord Meaning, our boss is not the end-all, be-all of our lives. It's our Savior who's behind him that we serve. That's what this text is calling us to do. And why we can even obey this text to an an employer who is unjust. We do not mean that we have to stay with an unjust employer. We have the freedom to move around in our employment. And In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes that same thing. If you can find your freedom, take it. But what we are saying is when we're in this mess, when there's nothing we can do, even serving an unjust employer, rather than this being a clocking in daily in and out to a life of futility, now even obeying an unjust and awful boss is actually something that you can make Jesus smile with. And gives meaning to an otherwise meaningless job. Gives glory to an otherwise unfulfilling work. It can make any work fulfilling if it is done for Jesus. Now, he continues. And he says that we do this with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as we would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. What this is pointing us to is that our doing of good things is going all the way down to the heart motivation. Speaks to our need for transformation from Jesus, doesn't it? To be able to do our work as if we were presenting our work to God, meaning doing it excellently. Now, this doesn't mean that we are going to do everything perfectly. The passage is not trying to turn us into neurotic OCD people trying to do every single thing that we do perfectly. My dad used to say when he, would, when he needed me to back off on how neurotic I was being about a particular job, he would say, son, we're not building a piano here. Pianos need to be built precisely for them to work. Digging a fence post, not so much. But what it does mean is that the work that we're doing, we should do it with a reasonable I'm excellence. Sorry. We should do this with heart and soul because we're doing it for our Lord. Regardless of what other people have thought about it, this is what it should look like. But what it shouldn't look like is what Paul goes on to describe by eye service, people pleasing. This term, eye service, is probably actually something that Paul coined. It doesn't show up anywhere else in Greek literature before this moment. So this is something that we're all familiar with it. We're only working so that we can be noticed. Only working so that our employer sees how valuable we are and making sure he knows what a good job we're doing, making sure he's pleased by it. That attitude is wrong because we're not here to please the boss. We're not here to work only so he notices or she notices. We're working so that God will notice. And here's the wonderful thing as Paul moves forward. He gives us a promise, says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. God notices each and every good thing. He notices each and every bad thing, too, Colossians 3.25, but he sees the good, too. And he will reward you, whether or not your boss notices or cares, whether or not your spouse notices or cares. The Lord notices and the Lord cares and brings glory to everything that you do. Would your work change if that's how you were doing it? Doing it out of love for Jesus? Have you ever noticed that we tend to put more effort into the things when we're working for people we like? We're faster on those callbacks. We look more carefully for typos in those emails. Because we love the other person. We want to do our best. It's the same thing when we should do all of our work for Jesus. It's done with excellence. Your love changes how you work. And of course, this is only possible from a transformed heart. We're not able to do this with excellent work, with an excellent heart, if it hasn't been changed. That's why we need to cry out to Christ every time we clock in. We need help, Lord, as you're sticking that card back in the clock or opening up your heart to Jesus every time you open up the laptop. It's like, all right, I'm going to work. Lord, help me work for you. Help this to be an extension of the worship that I did on Sunday. Let that worship follow you into the office on Monday or onto the field on Tuesday. Because Jesus notices. And Jesus loves. That's what this passage is calling us to do. He will see. And he will reward. What does that reward look like? I don't know. But I do know that God is in the big habit of doing far more than we ask or think. When he said, I will deliver you from my sins, who would have seen coming that God was going to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins? No one saw that coming in the Old Testament. So I can only imagine what's coming for us in the new. It's a lot easier to spend our money when we know we're going to be reimbursed. Let's spend our work capital. Let's put our heart and soul into it. Spend ourselves for the kingdom knowing that we will be richly reimbursed by a Savior who loves us deeply. I remember I was... During a spring break, we had had lightning strike one of our large oak trees in our yard and taken a big branch and had leaned it against the ground. And my dad and I spent the better part of a week out there trying to get the thing all trimmed up and get it to where we could take it down to the ground and chop it all up. It's actually a, a fond memory that I have working with my dad during those mornings. And at the end of it, when we finally got the tree all cut up and taken away, my dad surprised me with a gift at the end. Now. What that was, I did not earn my sonship because I worked for him for that tree. But I got a gift, not because I deserved it, but because my father is good to me. And it's the same way with you. Your work is not good enough to merit being God's child. It's arrogant to think otherwise. But isn't God a good father? To take our weak attempts and say, I'm going to bless you for it. We serve a good God who not only gives us commands, but gives us promises. He could have just left it at the command obey your masters or else. He said, Obey your masters because I'll see it. I'll accept that as worship. I'll give it meaning, even when it's unpleasant and unnoticed. That's our Savior. That's our God. But he has something to say to masters, too, as we look on to our second point. Get here to verse 9. It says, masters do the same, which is, I think, what he's talking about along with other scholars, is to do their work for the Lord, too. Masters had things they had to do, too. Uh, They were working for Jesus as well. And then he continues on. The first thing that he tells them is to stop your threatening. Now, what does this mean? Well, going into history, threatening of your slaves was something that happened each and every day. Whether that was verbal abuse or physical abuse or threatening that or the other, this was something that they could carry out onto their slaves with relative legal impunity. You could beat your slave as much as you wanted to because, after all, it was your property. We see sometimes when the drill doesn't work, we'll bang the bottom of it to try to get whatever it is. I don't know how it fixes it, it always does. When we smack the bottom of whatever tool that's not working for us to get it to go again, people didn't see it any differently the way you would do that with a slave. If they weren't doing what you wanted to do, hit them and do whatever you needed to do for him. And here what Paul is doing is not just, hey guys, stop the violence. What he is saying is you can't even threaten other people with that violence. If they were to obey that command, that undo, undoes a lot of what would have held slavery together. People will obey if they feel threatened. Do you see what Paul's doing here? It's like these people that you're threatening, they're actually equal with you. These people, no, you can't threaten them like that because they're made in the image of God, just like you are. Slavery would never be able to survive that kind of mental change. But that's exactly what he calls them to do and cuts that thread entirely. They were no longer allowed to use a slave's status to abuse them. And basically saying, no matter what it says on your business card, you're a slave of Christ. It's like, well, I'm the master and captain of an industry. Well, that's great. Business card still says slave of Jesus. Just like the janitor, the CEO. They're both Christians, same business card. Jesus doesn't look at them any differently. This is what they find. Tells them that they are serving Jesus as well. This is something we need to take to heart. This is something that I have seen a lot when I will you know, check out at the grocery store, especially in retail. When you genuinely ask the person behind the counter how their day is going or thank them for being there, it is unreal how often it's like they're shaken from a stupor. and It's like, what? Oh, my day is actually going okay, thank you. And it's like they're, they realize they're being treated like human beings. And it's unbelievable how much abuse these people take for minimum wage. Christians should not be known by that should not look just because they have a vest on that they are then able to be abused. Or because they have decided to go into food service for various reasons, that we can stiff them on tips. Christians shouldn't be known as poor tippers. We don't get to look at them as being less than us and treat them poorly, but that we are all the same because that's how Jesus sees us. So how can we apply this passage, having looked at all of these things? Well, for one, if you are no longer in the workforce, this passage still applies to you. As we said at the beginning, all sorts of people work for you. Even the people that try to work for you that you would rather them not work for you, like telemarketers. We don't get to abuse them either. We treat them excellently. Yes, it's an irritating industry. That doesn't mean we get to treat them poorly. If you are an employer, you own a business, we need to treat our employees excellently. If you're a manager, how do you manage your employees? Are you out for their good? Are you being careful with them? This is what Scripture calls us to do. Because Jesus is watching how we treat other people. And if we need a model for how we're supposed to treat other people, how does Jesus treat you? So you should treat your employees. If you're an employee, you don't have anybody over you, and you're at the bottom. You still only have one boss, and his name is Jesus. And the way that you work for your earthly bosses is ultimately working for Jesus. So even if your bosses are terrible people, that's okay. You don't have a terrible boss. Jesus is your boss. Be concerned about him. Be concerned about what your work looks like to him. Even if you can skate by in your work at your office because your boss doesn't care or your boss doesn't notice. We don't get to turn in half-done work. That's not what Jesus is looking for. Give it to him and give it to him freely. If you are a church officer here, either a deacon or an elder, You're on both ends of this spectrum. You are both a leader and you are a servant. That's why it's a high calling. Why you need to be praying for us as we go into our officer election season. For those that are taking on this work. We're responsible for both ends. To obey and listen closely and be careful how we rule. If you're a kid here, listen up. If you're a child and you say, it's like, well, I'm not in the workforce yet. I don't have a job like, yes, you do. Your parents are your masters. Your school is your work. Don't turn in homework just because, like, well, I'll just, I'll just take the F, it's okay. It's like, no, this is working for Jesus. Figure out those sums. Work through that science. Learn that history. Learn it for Jesus. Even if you don't see how this applies to your life. Guys, I've never used the quadratic formula. I have used algebra, though. Pay attention in that. Whatever work that you're doing, even if it's a subject you don't like, it's a subject that you can work towards for Jesus. So do that. This applies to you too. And again, the only way that we're able to do this, if you say it's like, this sounds exhausting. What are you talking about working for people that don't care about me? What are you talking about working on things that I'm not interested in? How can I do that? Well, you can't on your own. That's why you call out to Jesus every time you sit down at the desk. You say, Jesus, help me. Transform me. Help me live today for you. Don't be worried about next week yet. Ask for today. Find help there. We can leave behind these ways. It might be slow. might be hard, particularly if we're not used to working like that. But we keep coming back to Jesus every day for that strength to do what he has called us to do, knowing that he has done all of that work for us. Jesus was the model employee. When God looks at your record, he sees Jesus' perfect time card, turning in all of his work on time and on target, even when you haven't. We don't work at the office to be acceptable to Jesus. We've already been accepted in Jesus. So now work for him knowing that he already loves you and is wanting to turn you into an employee that brings glory to God. Wouldn't you love to be able to have your employer say, I wish I could hire more Christians like that one over there. They do their work so well. What is it about that Bible that makes them this way? It's a powerful witness when we do our work with excellence. Finally, If you say it's like, well, if you were surprised by the statistic that I mentioned earlier, about 50 million slaves still around the world, there are wonderful ministries that are working to combat just that. If you'd like to ask me more about that or if you'd like some help with that, the International Justice Mission is a great place that will work with these countries and have freed so many people from these bondages and help them to live lives, not just set them free from slavery and then send them on their way, But set them free from slavery to man and help them become servants of Christ. It's a beautiful ministry and love to tell you more. For now, as we get ready for the Lord's Supper, we remember as we come to this supper that Jesus has done all this work. And we come to taste of this good work. So let's pray and prepare our hearts for it. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this passage that we have been able to examine, help us to look with joy at the work that's in front of us, even if we would normally dread tomorrow, even if we look look to Monday with a sense of queasiness, help us to look to it with a sense of glory, that what we do matters. That what we learn here in church applies well beyond these walls. Help us to live this life that you've called us to live and help us to live in a way that brings glory to you in every work that we do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.